Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 176 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the funniest people of our time, a 44-year-old actress who first made her name as a cast member on NBC's Saturday Night Live over seven seasons spanning 2005 through 2012, and who recently received her eighth Emmy nomination for Best Guest Actress in a Comedy Series in recognition of her November 19th, 2016 return to Studio 8H as a host, the great Kristen Wiig. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of LTLA in Los Angeles, Wig and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, why she abruptly dropped out of college where she had been an arts major and relocated from Tucson to Los Angeles to pursue a career as an actress, how she wound up working with the celebrated improv group The Groundlings, and how several years of that eventually led to auditions for SNL, what inspired some of her most famous SNL characters, including the Target Lady, Gilly, Penelope, and Aunt Linda, and why she never watched any episodes of the show while she still was on it, how she wound up co-writing and playing the lead in the 2011 film Bridesmaids, which became one of the biggest blockbusters of all time and earned her a Best Original Screenplay Oscar nomination, and then followed it in the most unexpected of ways, mostly with dark indie dramas. What it was like for her to return to SNL four years after saying goodbye to it, this time as a host, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Kristen, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course. We always begin with the basic, just where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, wow. Yes, we're going to go back. Let's, we're going back. I was born in Canandaigua, New York. Canandaigua Lake is one of the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, so close to Rochester, which is where I lived later in life. Um, my dad owned the marina on Canandaigua Lake, so he's a boat guy. Nice. My dad worked in the boat business for a while, and then he was in the wire industry. The wire? <laughs> Fascinating. What's the wire industry? Um, well, we all need wires, right? I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he sold wire and okay, cable. Okay. Not Baltimore wire. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Yeah. It was in Pennsylvania. It was um, right. right now. It was, yeah, wire and cable company. Yes. And my mom, she worked for Special Olympics for a long time. Very nice. So yeah. I've gone back, tried to find as many old interviews and everything along the way since (laughs) i read one and maybe maybe you know things are wrong that are out there but they definitely are sometimes okay let's hear it (laughs) 
Were you kind of a wild adolescent? That's one of those things when you start doing interviews <laughs> and you just start telling stories and then right. you learn later, like, oh no, don't talk it comes about that. Back. It just yes. it comes back. I don't know if wild is the right word, <laughs> but yeah, I got into trouble a lot. Like, what are we talking about? Did you do hard time here? What was no, no, never did hard time. You know, kid stuff, prank phone calls, you know, breaking into like apartment pools and like you know, it's all things like that. I don't even want to say it's so embarrassing. <laughs> you know, you do a little shoplifting when you're a kid. Um, I'm not proud of it. But I mean, was this part of just being? I mean, people might assume you were a class clown. Is that accurate? If you can be a quiet class clown, I guess. I mean, I wasn't, you know, like performing in front of the in the front of the class or mm-hmm. anything. But I don't. I don't know. I. I don't. It's hard to look back and have perspective on like what kind of personality you had to other people. Because mm-hmm. to me, I, I felt just like a normal kid and looking through my yearbooks people had written that I was funny and I remember thinking like oh my gosh that's I never noticed that that's weird (laughs) but I I wasn't like annoying about it (laughs) I wasn't like putting on wigs and you know (laughs) I did teach my class how to moonwalk though wow I don't know if that's a class class it's a a good skill (laughs) good fun fact so graduating from high school what did you think you were gonna do with your life if somebody had put a gun to your head right then and said tell us what your career is gonna be what would you have said Deep down, I didn't really know what I wanted it to be, but I think I was going to be an art major and probably be an art teacher. And you were an art major, right? You go off to... Well, I went to Roanoke for a year, and then I went to the University of Arizona. Arizona. And that was... So art major, for the reasons that you've said, I guess, from what I understand, part of the requirement of doing that was that you have to do a performing arts class as well? There were different majors in the art program, and one of them was studio art, which meant you could have really three majors instead of have just focusing on one. Okay. So mine was drawing, painting, and sculpture. And in the curriculum, you had to take certain classes in another category. And I don't even remember what the other ones were, but one of them was, I think it was called Acting 101. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's where you start. Yes. And I was terrified because I hated speaking in front of anyone. Plus, you Um, had no interest in being an actress, No, no, I I didn't. I mean, I thought about it as a kid as much as any kid does when you watch TV and you see, like, Kirk Cameron and you're like, I want (laughs) to move to L.A. and marry him and be on the TV show. But I didn't really, like, I wasn't, like, a performing child. I did maybe, like, two plays. And by plays... Quotes. I'm making quotes with my air quotes. Air quotes like um, like the like a munchkin in the right. Wizard of Oz, like in the background, like <laughs> looking around the theater. So what happens? You go to this performing arts class, and what do you have to do? It wasn't acting in the sense where you were given a. Eventually, you were given a script, I think. But in the beginning, it was about you know we can all have a conversation with each other, and we can all perform in life, and sort of he sort of connected that to acting, where like there'd be some improv exercises and he would give us a script where the only thing we would say, like, let's say I said a, and you said B and then I said C and then you said D like that was the whole script, but we had to do it as if we were telling the other person we were breaking up with them or something like that. (laughs) So it was kind of like learning how to do it like around 
yeah. by going around it a little bit. And I liked it because it didn't put you in positions where you felt like you were acting or that there was a right way to do it. So you weren't nervous about it. It was almost like you did it and then you realized you just did a scene like he tricked you kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, I loved it. So this is over the course of one course in a single yeah, semester? It was, I think it was even like summer school. Wow. So he gave you positive feedback? He did. He was, yeah, he said you should do this. And I was, didn't understand. I didn't really know what this meant. And like I said, I mean, it was in the back of my head, but I just assumed it's sort of in the back of everyone's yeah, head, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like moving it to would LA. Be cool. yeah, yeah. Or yeah. just like, that sounds like fun. Right. And, so how long after he gives this note of encouragement, do you digest it enough to say to yourself, well, actually that might not be a bad thing to look into? I mean, it was within the next semester. And I, I had also taken, there was a performance art class which also involved some like performing, <laughs> but that was more just like performance art yeah. where it didn't have to be, a, you know, that like there was no script or anything right. like that. And you wrote your own stuff and it was all sort of very weird things that you did, which I actually really loved. Mm-hmm. But that, that sort of added a little bit of the performance experience to my life. I, I loved it. Okay. So now you've, you've gotten the feedback, you're thinking about it. I don't know if most people would do what it sounds like you did, which was pretty much just like pack up and leave, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, we've all had that moment where we're like, what am I doing with my life? I thought it was this, it's not. And then you feel like, oh no, am I a failure or what's wrong with me? I've changed my mind. I mean, we've all, I was going to say that's your twenties, but I think that happens you know, but you were still stages. in college. How did you feel like a failure? What do you? Well, no, it wasn't even so much. That I felt like a failure. It's just you know, you. I was an art major, and I was. I had this plan. I think there's so much emphasis about having a plan when you're too young to have one, mm-hmm. and you know, and it's like you go home and you visit your friends, and it's like, what are you doing? What where are you going to go? Like, what's your major? What's your job going to be? That's all anyone's talking right. about. So you, you have an answer, and you just repeat it. And I was just going to art school. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I figured I'd be an art teacher. And when I knew I wanted to do this, first of all, it's like, you know, you sound crazy. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I give so much credit to people that pack up their car. I mean, to do anything, not just acting, but. Right. But you literally did that. Yeah. One day. I just had a feeling. I don't know. I just had a feeling and I didn't feel like I was giving up anything that was, that felt right. So, so it was an easier change. Dropping out of school, yeah. coming out here, knowing anybody? My roommate lived here. So your roommate at? At the U of A. U of A. Lived here. So conveniently. <laughs> <laughs> so she was like, come stay with us. Right. And, and this then was I found over a summer or what? Oh, God. I well, think so. Well, for her so. to be here, right? Because yeah, she didn't yeah. drop out. Right. Yeah, I know. It was summer. It was summer. And so you're out here. And what's like, I guess you probably, what, signed up for some acting classes or something? Well, right? I... I didn't really know what I was going to do because I didn't tell my parents that they, I had left. <laughs> what do they think you are? I'm not, I'm not condoning this. Yes. <laughs> um, because I knew that I, I just didn't want to defend it over the phone. I just wanted to do it. And Were, were they still paying your tuition? <laughs> no, I actually was paying for okay, school. Okay. And I just know my parents slash most parents yes. when they hear that. it's It's a bit of a, because it's, I mean, it's hard to just come out here and ha- or have a child say they're going to come out here and try this thing 
that thousands of other people try and the numbers aren't on your side. And there, there's a lot to that. And I understood or I I knew that they were going to be like worried about it. But my dad was more worried than my mom. My mom was more like, oh, that's great. Once you know, what are you going to do? I'm going to take classes. Great. I want you to be happy. My dad was is more was more practical about right. it. <laughs> like, what does this mean? What's your plan B? What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> so you're out here. You, as you say, I guess you start enrolling in classes originally, just kind of like traditional yeah, drama classes, right? Yeah, just like acting. How do you end up at the Groundlings? I was doing one of my many jobs out here. I was doing a interior painting, and basically people with a lot of money would have people come and paint where it looked like wallpaper, but it was like painted, okay. like stencil, yeah, things yeah. like that. So I was doing that, and my... My boss, who's a friend of mine and still is a friend of mine, he just said, have you ever heard of the Groundlings? And I was like, no, because I, I hadn't, I've never heard of improv or anything. And he said, I went to a show last night and I thought of you, you have to go. I feel like you, this is like, you just have to go see a show. Why there. do you think he thought of you? I, I don't know. I think because he knew I wanted to get into acting and it was comedy, which I had never done but maybe because he knew me or thought i right. I, I don't know yeah, but yeah. he just said this you just have to go and so i went and i remember the show so specifically and the people who were in it and i was like oh my god i i want to try this i'd never seen improv before and then i auditioned for like remember the drama log it was like oh. a mag it was like a newspaper for actors where they would have like auditions and stuff really okay. <laughs> and i would get that and there was one that was like improv group auditions and i went and I was really excited because I got in. And then I found out that everyone who showed up to the audition <laughs> got in. But still, yes. I got in. Yeah. And anyway, and then actually Jordan Black, who's a good friend of mine, who's yeah. hilarious. He was at the Groundlings and, and in the group at the same time. And so he was sort of talking about it. And I would go see shows. And I started taking classes. And the way it works, if I understand it correctly, is like you can't, you can't really move up the food chain without putting in some time there, right? So you... Well, like the first class, like the basic class, your teacher passes you, says you, you might get it the next time, repeat, or, you know, maybe this isn't mm-hmm. for you. <laughs> Don't waste your money. Right. So that's how the first few levels work. Right. And then as you get up, you do performances. And then the company, the members of the Groundlings vote on you. So it's other people really deciding if you move up or not. But a key thing to note is, because first of all, how long from that first time you joined till you left how long were you with the groundlings um i don't even know the amount of years i took a little time off well it wasn't really time off but between certain levels there was a time where it was like maybe a year and a half wait or something so i did some traveling and but i mean the gist is that you were there for four years and they don't pay you no which and my dad fact, brought up a lot. <laughs> Why are you doing these shows every week? <laughs> right. And early on, you're paying them at least. I yes, mean, I guess you when are. you join the company, do you stop paying them? Hopefully, Yeah, you don't pay when, okay. you're, when you're in that. But I mean, it was not a profitable venture for you to do no. this. But there, it was clearly for future things valuable. What were the biggest takeaways from, from being with them? Oh, my gosh. I, that's a long list. <laughs> I mean, I learned everything about performing from every angle from what you see works as an audience member to to writing and to how you should be a collaborator and backstage and all of it. I mean, I 
I really learned between that and SNL, I feel like those were like the two best Yeah. And there's colleges. a reason why <laughs> SNL tends to pull people from yeah. the Growlings or Second City or whatever. Side note, how did you first land a manager? She came to see my Groundlings, one of who my Groundlings. Is, who was she? Oh, Naomi Odenkirk. And how did you know her? Oh, I babysat for her. You're, this is one of <laughs> so you're probing me. I'm like, you did some research. I forgot about that. Yeah. No, my good friend, Stephanie Courtney, who's in the Groundlings with me, she used to babysit for Bob and Naomi, and sometimes when she couldn't do it, I would babysit. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I invited her to my show. Right. And she came. It's probably for her initially. It's probably one of she these like <laughs> grudging things. Oh, she Jesus, that. right? She's like, oh, what's this going to be? Um, <laughs> and it was for advanced, which means you had two shows. So I think she came to the second one, okay. and then she. So she was not sorry that she came and signed you. <laughs> <laughs> that I guess did what for you? Start getting real paying jobs on the side while you're still with the Groundlings, or you leave the Groundlings and start getting? Uh, no, I was. I stayed at the Groundlings. Yeah, I mean that's that. Those were the audition years. I mean, because what's the Joe Schmo show? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that was that was the first thing I had done. I think I might I might have done like a few commercials, but it was a show on Spike Mm -hmm. that was looking for improvisers to basically do like a fake reality show, but one of the people didn't know it was fake. (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And you're you're playing like a a wacky marriage counselor. Yeah. But this is the first time you're being paid to improvise. Yes. Getting paid to improvise is not something that happens a lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I don't know how long that continued or if it continued. Oh, no. That was just like a few weeks. Oh, just a few? Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That was not, I wasn't buying houses. That was like. Think maybe a ten day job. Right, right. Okay. Well, let's let's go off on a tangent for a second here. Had you watched SNL as a kid? Yes. Were you somebody, one of these people who like grew up dreaming of being on it, or it was just a thing that you enjoyed? I think it was so far from my reality that I, I don't know. You don't even think about it. I mean, I didn't because you know, as a kid, I wasn't thinking about being an actor. And when you see things on TV, shot in Hollywood or like New York, it just feels like that's another right. world. Right. So having now put in your few years already at the Groundlings and having acquired this manager and, you know, probably starting to think about what am I actually going to do with my life when I have to, you know, start really earning money and doing whatever. How does it get to the point where you end up sending in a audition tape? Whose idea was that even to, to send a tape to SNL? Well, I mean, those sort of grumblings are always in the walls yeah. <laughs> growlings, you know, because so many people have come from there yeah. and everyone's whenever they have auditions or they come to see the show, it's it's a thing. And I'd been talking to Naomi about it for a little while and I didn't want to send one in before I was ready. I think we had talked about it a little before and, and waited. And I had just gotten in the main company. We had sent a tape in and then I, I got the audition and the main company is like as high as you can go there yeah but it was not a situation which i guess also sometimes happens where like lauren will go to chicago or wherever and find somebody that he's seen doing what they're in this case his first exposure to you was this tape that you sent in yeah and what what do you do on the tape well they tell you to you know just do characters impressions anything that you think is going to get you an audition really so i just you know sent in scenes from 
poorly taped <laughs> sketches at the Groundlings. I don't think I did anything into the camera for the audition. Yeah. I think it was just sort of clips of yeah. stuff I had done there. And so can you connect the dots from you put it off in the mail through to you finding out that you've got a job? How long and what happened in that period? Well, I send in the tape and Lindsay Shookus, who works at SNL, she was the one that saw my tape and passed it on to Steve Higgins, who's one of the producers. And then they called me to fly to New York and they said, prepare five minutes, don't go over five minutes. And just show us, I don't know if they said this or I just thought it, but just cram as much as you can in five minutes because you have five minutes. So I wrote a five minute audition and I got to New York and I bought a stopwatch <laughs> because I wanted to time it to make sure I was trying to get it to five minutes. Cause I didn't know if like the lights were going to turn out and everyone was going to leave. <laughs> then of course I get there and people are like going on for like nine, 10 oh, minutes, God. but I, I heard five minutes. So I bought a stopwatch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I did it. And was there anything in what you did there in those five minutes that people would recognize from what you later did? Yeah, I auditioned twice, so I can't remember what was in the first one, but I, Target Lady, Aunt Linda, who's an update character that mm-hmm, I did, mm-hmm. a very relevant Karen Walker impression, <laughs> which is not even Megan Mullally, it's Megan Mullally's character in Will and Grace. <laughs> I was like, well, I'll just do it to show that like I can manipulate my voice. Right. And then I have another like Jane Polly, which is like, right. it's not, <laughs> no one's writing Jane Polly sketches. Right. But I just wanted to show like a vocal range and writing skills yeah. and didn't hear anything. And then they asked me to come back. I just want to ask about, so that first audition was in H yeah. forlorn. Yes. So supposedly I've, I've read the same SNL oral history and everything as everybody else. It sounds like he doesn't laugh at auditions. That's not true. Okay. He does laugh. I mean, I don't know. I can't go back in time and say he laughed at, no, 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 but, but you had a, he, he was responsive. Yes, he was. And and I've talked to other people who, you know, yeah. he's laughed in their audition and, you know, it's, it's Lauren, it's, it was Tina. I think Seth was there. Higgins again. I think Paula Pell, Marcy Klein, Mike Shoemaker. I mean, it was like, you know, 10 people yeah. sitting at a table and you walk by and then you go up on stage and you can't see anything like their tables <laughs> in the dark and you just go and yeah, I mean, I, I heard, I don't know, this feels weird to say that I heard they were laughing. But That's good. No, it was, it was, I felt like I did what I wanted to do. I didn't feel like I embarrassed myself. And I just kind of let it go after. Let's just quote something that Seth Meyers said in an interview. I guess, as you say, he was one of the people in first or second or both. I don't know. Okay, well, he saw you at some point and he says, quote, like two lines in. It was like, oh, great. So we're going to hire her. She'll be on the show for seven years, close quote. So, I mean, it sounds like you definitely did make that That's nice. big first impression. <laughs> and it's interesting because your first audition that you're happy with. Yeah. But they say what? Like, not that you have they the said job. nothing. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> Which is the way of the show. So you go I back mean, to your hotel or something or what? I went back to my hotel and I went home and silence. And I believe, I want to say that was like May or June. And then in August... They asked if I would come out with a, come out again. And, you know, if I have any new stuff, I could say, do that too. And I was like, oh my God, I did everything that I could possibly do. <laughs> but I was really glad that they said that because it forced me to think of new stuff and impressions. And, and I went back, 
I was less nervous, I think, because I knew what the process was and I was in the building now for the second time and I felt a little more comfortable. Yeah. I mean, like the tiniest <laughs> bit more. I felt like, okay, if this happens, great. If not, I'm not meant to be here because I'm I'm doing what I think yeah. is funny. And if they don't like it, then that's that's great. Right. And then I left that audition. Oh, no, actually, I was told that Lauren wanted to meet with me. And then I was talking to Will Forte. And he was like, oh, that's that's it. Like, that's <laughs> he has you meet with them and then he hires you. Like, that's what happens. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm getting hired. <laughs> and I went in to meet with him and we talked and I was terrified and shaking. And then he was like, well, we don't know. We don't really have room right now <laughs> or something. And I was like, okay. Because he's also supposedly in these meetings, never very clear about what he wants anyway. Yeah. I left knowing I didn't get it. Like, that's how that's how I felt. And you thought it was over? Or oh, yeah. Was... I thought it was done. Okay. So that's pretty disappointing. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew that it just didn't seem like it was going to happen right mm-hmm. now. And then the season started, and that's when I really knew that I didn't get it because yeah. <laughs> I'm watching TV and right. I'm not there. <laughs> and then, like, three shows in, we got a call saying, can she come to New York? We wanted to be on the show and watch Saturday and then start the next week. And then I was like, where do I live? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, then it was, like, wow. packed up and moved to the tiniest, greatest apartment. And What uh, part the of the city? Upper West Side. Okay. Greatest because it was, it meant a lot to right. me. You know, it was like my first You're in New, New York. York apartment yeah. and it was so small, but I loved it. So you, you watch that first show just as an observer, you join the next one. And one thing I saw that you'd said in another interview, quote, I was still terrified to do Weekend Update because I never really did a lot of stuff by myself. But after I started doing things on Update, I really started to like playing different characters, close quote. So what, I mean, was that pretty early on that they're saying this is a way you can sort of show what you got? No, no. I I think for me, I just saw Update as an area of the show that I was just going to leave to other people. (laughs) (laughs) Because I I had never done stand-up, and it felt like a stand-up performance because you're just looking into the camera and you're not playing off anyone, and that's not something I was familiar with at all. And then when I started doing it... You know what? I'm just going to interrupt for one second. because What did the first show that you were on... What did you actually have to do for that? Because if it wasn't the update, we can come back to that. But I want to, I want to kind of get a sense of how you, you know, you're suddenly thrown in the deep end. How, yeah. did, it, how did it go? It was good. Jason Lee was the host and the Foo Fighters, and I was in like three or four things. One of which I co-wrote with Jason Sudeikis, and then the very first sketch I was in was one where Amy Poehler was pregnant in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, Dad, tune in. Right. That was the first sketch that I was in, and I'm so proud of that. <laughs> Classic. All right. Well, how early on did you start introducing on the show some of these characters that everyone now associates with you? And maybe actually, if, if it's all right with you, can I mention a few and we can oh, sure. go through some origin stories here? Yeah. So Target Lady, you, when did that start? That was at the Groundlings. Okay, so you've yeah. done that. It wasn't something you auditioned with, was it? It was part I of think the- it was a character I had in there, yeah. Okay. And where'd you come up with that one? I met a lady at Target <laughs> who oh, kind right. of had an interesting voice. Right. And it was at the time I was at the Groundlings where we were just like trying to find characters and I just remember trying to do her voice in my car and 
I had never written a sketch by myself. Right. You'd always like write with partners. I was like, I'm just going to try. I'm just going to try it. I'm going to try to write a sketch by myself. And I'm going to try this person. And I didn't want to do it. Right. I wanted to pull it. I was embarrassed. And then it ended up going in the show. And then I ended up doing it on SNL. So, so presumably strange. it went over well at Groundlings. I mean, yeah, it was in the show for, for a bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gilly, this just lets remind people that overgrown schoolgirl always yes. says <laughs> sorry for overgrown. horrible pranks that she does. <laughs> yes. She, Paul Appel was someone that I love and adore. She was a writer at SNL for a long time. And we were actually writing a different sketch. And we just, I think we just started doing that. Like we just started doing the sorry. And then we just wrote it and it just kind of happened. Penelope, who compulsively has to one up everyone around her. Yeah, that was based on someone I know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we all know someone that ones up a little bit. James Anderson and Kent Sublet were the two writers that I wrote with every week. I think the entire seven years I was there. And that was... Is there a reason for that? You guys just had it you just You just get, you just click with, um, I don't know. Were, they were Groundlings writers. alums too, right? Kent. Kent. Kent was, okay. yeah. We we were in the Groundlings together. And James is probably one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. Wow. He's still there. The aforementioned Aunt Linda, film critic with horrible taste. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that also I wrote with Paula in the beginning, based a little on... Against someone that I know. And that was a Groundlings character. That was a Groundlings oh, okay. character, yeah. In terms of fictional people, meaning not the great real-life people who you impersonated, Susie Orman, Michelle Bachman, Kathy Lee Gifford, we could go on. Is there another fictional person that was near and dear to you, or did we cover the the big ones for you? The- oh God, I can't think. <laughs> I don't know. It's so weird. It's like I go back to SNL, and it's the same. Yeah. And I feel like... My dressing room's still upstairs and I haven't left. But when I'm away from it, maybe also because I'm on the West Coast right, right. right now, it feels like I worked there 10 years ago. Yeah. It's very strange. Well, we'll when we get to the guest hosting aspect, we'll, yeah. we'll come continue on that. But I read that when you were on the show, in the cast, you never watched the show. How could that be? No, I never did. Why? That's crazy. I think because I saw the creating of it and the watching of it as two totally separate things. And I was so focused on making it every week. And I didn't want to watch myself. I didn't want to see what I was doing. I didn't want to be conscious of it. Because I feel like once I saw myself, if I were to watch it, I would be like, oh, that's what I look like when I blank. Or that's what I do. I didn't know I was doing that. Now I know I do that. I just didn't want to be conscious at all. I wanted to just go on stage and perform for the people that were in 8H, and then the show's over. And that doesn't change even when you're getting increasingly great feedback and people are saying you're doing a great job and whatever. You're not even tempted to go. No, never. I I think also it, it became... Maybe it became a bit of an OCD thing of like, okay, well, I haven't watched it, so I'm not yeah, going to watch right, it now. Right. I mean, because you have like, when you go into the Monday night meeting in Lauren's office, like everyone sits in the same place, <laughs> things like that. I don't know. It was almost like you're creating this thing. Maybe it's like a painting and you're just like painting it and painting it. And every Saturday you turn it around and you show a bunch of people and then you get your feedback and then it's done. Right. But if I were to watch if I were to see that on their side, it changes the experience yeah. for me. That's a terrible analogy. No, oh that's interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I just, it put me, it was like a different set of glasses that I didn't want to have on. Yeah. 
seven years. You go in there, nobody outside of groundlings and your social circle knew who you were. When that began to change over the course of seven years, how did you handle that? I don't know if you ever handle it. (laughs) (laughs) It's strange. I mean, you know, to have that first time when someone's like, hey, you're on SNL or something. Do you remember where it was? No, I mean, in New York somewhere. Oh, I can't. Walk I don't, out of 30 Rock. And yeah. I, and people are always outside 30 Rock at the end of the show, and it's overwhelming. I wouldn't say I embraced it because I just, it scared me a little bit, mm-hmm. and I just didn't want things to change. And <laughs> having people know who you are, to me, just felt like very vulnerable and mm-hmm. exposed. I, I didn't see any good side of it. And being in New York's a different thing because it's such an SNL town. And I don't know. When you leave New York and then you feel like like maybe someone recognizes you or something, then it feels totally weird. Right. Because you just think New York is the whole world. Right. <laughs> well, you guys do just inherently exist in kind of a bubble doing the show, right? Yeah. Within the building, within the Oh, floor. yeah. You don't. Yeah. You're, you're it. And that cast is your family and the writers. And you, you live in that building. I'm going to ask you in a moment about some of the things you did in between seasons. But just to mark the end of that chapter, after seven seasons, why did you decide to leave? And what did you make of that final episode, the whole Goodbye Ruby Tuesday thing? um, I knew from the very beginning that I was going to just stay the seven years, even from year one. I just knew that I was going to be there seven years. And it wasn't that I didn't want to stay for eight. It was just... I don't know. It was just a a knowing that I had. And did you know what you wanted to do next? No, no, I didn't know. It just felt like the right time. Even before it was my fifth year, it just felt right that it was seven. Maybe because it's like seven is sort of like cyclical or something. And the contracts were for seven years. I'm like, maybe there's a reason for that. I don't know (laughs) for me. (laughs) And many of the people who sign those don't make it to seven, right? Yeah. And some people stay longer. I mean, I just knew it was time. And it's, you know, it's a tiring job. I mean, you, you age when you're there. Well, it's that in the presidency. But like why yeah. maybe for people who don't who don't appreciate like I mean, the schedule is relentless. Yeah. And what was the most wearing part of the whole ordeal? Well, Tuesday night you're up all night writing and that's it's tiring, but it's fun cuz it's you're you're writing the show and it's just it's just a fun night. Wednesday is long because it's the read through and everyone's been up all night and it's just long and you're reading. And then Thursday and Friday, you know, you're just blocking everything and rehearsing. And then when you have to do like maybe a digital short early in the morning, which is always hard because SNL is such a late night thing. Getting up early is like, (laughs) doesn't feel natural. Right. I don't know. I mean, it's like every day has its part where you think, oh, my God, this is where I collapse. But it's also like, oh, but this day's exciting because we get to do this. Were you able to have a personal life during those seven years? Yeah. Yeah, I was. But I wasn't able to travel or see family very much. Yeah. You know, it's Saturday, so you miss a lot of weddings. Right. Lauren, I was, we yeah. just did a last week we were in New York and did an episode with him. And it was just like, how many how many family members are pissed at you for, you know, it's like, it's true. <laughs> okay. So meanwhile, though, where maybe people will be surprised to know that in the off season, when you could catch up on sleep and just relax and whatever you, and I guess most people who can from the show keep working. And like, maybe we can ask about a few of the things that you did in between seasons because they were laying the groundwork for, I guess, where we are now. So 
especially let's start with Knocked Up. This is in, came out in 07, so I guess you probably did it in 06 or whatever. And small scene, but killed it to the point where that leads to something with Judd Apatow, right? Right. Yeah. Your job there basically the whole in the whole movie is to get Katherine Heigl to lose weight. Yes. And so, but you can't really ask her to do that. So you say, quote, we would just like it if you would go home and step on a scale and write down how much you weigh and subtract it by like 20, <laughs> close quote. So you do that, you do it in a great way. And what does Judd Apatow say to you? Well, I auditioned for that and didn't think I was going to get it. And when I auditioned, we sort of played with different types of personalities like well, what if she's like this what if she's that what if she's passive aggressive right and then that one sort of stuck and then we just played and improvised and he would shout things out and he would say try things and it was so fun and i, I didn't know that you could do that in a movie because <laughs> it's just even that was different than anything you'd done at growlings or snl yeah right? well yeah i mean i i hadn't really done much film work and it was certainly like the biggest film I'd ever done. Yeah, it was just nice to work with someone that wants to play, you know, and just say, well, try this, try that. Oh, that's funny. Do that again. Or what about this? And there was just a freedom in there that I didn't, I wasn't expecting. And at the end of the brief collaboration, what does he say to you? He had mentioned that, that Universal talked to him about, you know, having me do something or write something and... So I called one of my best friends, Annie Mumolo, because we'd written a lot at the Growlings together. And mm-hmm. I was like, would you ever be interested in writing a movie with me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was like, yeah. And we went over some ideas. And and she said, you know, I've always had this idea about, you know, and then Bridesmaids came. Bridesmaids, okay. <laughs> Going back to uh, before Bridesmaids, another off-season activity, Adventureland was a great little movie. Thank 2009 you. came out. So again, probably 08. Then I guess your first dramatic was All Good Things. Yeah, yeah. Which is another like nice little indie movie people should go see. So that came, that comes out in 2010, which is probably when you guys went to work on Bridesmaids, which you I get, you made, I forgot, it was you were still on SNL when you were making this. Yeah. So that's another off-season thing. And you explained how you ended up working with Annie on this and even where the idea came from. But what were you trying to say with this movie? Was there so, obviously mainly make people laugh? We I never guess. approached it that way. Yeah. No, we wanted to write something that we thought was a funny story and that had a lot of places for women because we know a lot of funny women and hadn't really been seeing a lot of that. And so that's really what it was. I mean, Annie and I don't, it's very simple. Like we just sit down and write stuff that makes us laugh. And there's, Usually no <laughs> deeper meaning. <laughs> well, in this case, you guys, I guess, went back to a lot of fellow groundlings, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Who in that movie also was a groundling? Wendy McLennan-Covey. We actually rewrote that part for her. For her? She's one of the funniest people I know. Maya Rudolph and Melissa McCarthy. Had you and actually overlapped there with any of them? With Melissa, yeah. With Melissa. With Maya, no, but I knew her from SNL. Yeah, of course. Yeah. How much of Bridesmaids, person you're playing, whatever, you've said that you like injected a lot of semi-autobiographical things. So for people who have, there are people that have watched this movie way <laughs> too many times. Are you going to ask me what should, part of it is well, me? <laughs> sure. Oh my God. I don't know. Maybe more just like themes of not feeling like you fit in and being uncomfortable and socially awkward, which I can <laughs> be. 
And I'm not saying that in like a cute way. I just, I sometimes struggle (laughs) with that. And I don't know, there's something we just thought a lot of people, mostly women would relate to about friendship and how it changes and how it is like a breakup and women go through so much with their friends through their lives. And, and also like, we just wanted to be funny and we wanted to, we didn't want it to be like something else. And, you know, Annie and I have a very character-driven sense of humor where we just, if you know who the character is, the, the comedy comes easier when you're writing rather than just trying to write jokes. Well, how about being a central character in a movie for the first time? You're, it's an ensemble, but you're the front of the ensemble. So terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying, yeah? Of course, yeah. I mean, What I, part? Well, I mean, we made it and we were like, okay, well... Let's all call our families and make sure they go see it so we sell tickets. (laughs) Because you have no idea when you're You feel like you're being judged? No, it's not about that. It's it's a you don't know what translates with SNL even. If you maybe there's something where maybe you don't get it and you're like, why is that on the show? It's like, no, that worked at some point, or it wouldn't have been on the show. And that's the mystery though, right? Why would something work at rehearsal but not on the main show? Different crowds, different people. The moon. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like comedy. So that's why when people talk about it being so hard, it's because you can't figure it out. You can't tell me something that everyone will think is funny. Right. That's why comedies to me should be specific. Right. And you find out who your audience is and you write it with them in mind. Because I think the problem is, a lot of times studios will take a comedy and say, okay, but this has to apply to everyone. And you end up watering it down yeah. or changing the ingredients where it's like, that's not going to taste good. Like it tasted really good to like this group of people. Like, right. just trust me, have right. it just be that because humor is so specific and it doesn't a script. You can't say that all comedy scripts have to be 110 pages. Right. They, they're just not going to be. Some will be funnier at 140. They just will be funnier. And now I'm getting on a tirade of comedies <laughs> and studios. I didn't mean to. But you, you have no, and it happens even with SNL, you'll read something at the table that gets applause. And then it dies on camera. And the same thing, and you know that going into a movie when you're shooting a scene or an entire 54-day movie shoot, and you're like, is this good? Well, so let's let's just take an example from Bridesmaids and, uh, you know, ask you, because clearly it, a lot went into this scene that I'm going to ask you about. And I think it plays as well as any moment in the movie. But did you know, did you feel confident that it would? And that is the aftermath of some food poisoning. That scene was not our idea and it was not in the original script. And we didn't love it. Really? Yeah. Where did it come from? It just, I can't remember specifically that was strongly suggested for us to put that in there. And so Annie thought, Annie and I were like, okay, well, we will write the version that we think is funny and that we feel comfortable with because we were not like, we didn't want to see people like going to the bathroom. You can, you can say anywhere. You can say, okay, podcast. I didn't want to see people like shitting yeah. and puking. Yeah. That was not. In your We're vision. like, this is not the movie. Right. That, no. So actually, you resisted this. We idea. did. Yeah, I, we admitted that before. Yeah, it's we we didn't love the idea, but we were like, okay, we're going to write it and do our version of it, and which again is like that challenge that 
you just end up getting something good when you are forced to do that because we thought, oh, well, what if, what if my character is resisting that she's sick and, (laughs) and just playing with all the different, like, like how funny to see Ellie's character who's so prim and proper. Like, what is she going to do when she's to throw up? And like, what is Melissa going to (laughs) say? And how is Wendy? Like, then it started to get like, okay, well, trusting ourselves and trusting Judd and trusting the cast. And he even said, he's like, we're not going to put anything in that's like, you're not comfortable with. And let's just, let's try it. Which is one reason I love Judd so much is he taps into that part of me that can be like, well, we're going to write this. And then here's the plan. And he's like, let's see what else we can do and let's play and let's throw that away for a second and let's try this. And he's, he inspired me to think that way. But that's interesting because now, so when you see the movie and you see that scene, is a part of you still resentful that it was imposed upon you or have you been able to embrace that? It's not, it's not, I mean, it's, it's always going to be the scene that wasn't in the original that was added for other reasons. It will always be that way. But I mean, I don't look at any second of that movie with anything but joy and and gratitude. And you know, it's, it's some people's favorite scenes. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so that you know that movie, just to remind folks, huge hit, more than two hundred million dollars at the box office. You become an Oscar nominated screenwriter, which is pretty amazing and terrific. And it sounds like you weren't super confident making the movie that anyone was going to see it. So to have it be that popular, that appreciated, that embraced, all of that, what was that like? It's weird. I don't know. I mean, we shot it. I, I wasn't like, you know, scared. I didn't think people yeah. were going to hate it. I just, you know, you don't expect that. Yeah. And it's been a weird ride with it. Five, six years ago. Six years ago. Oh my God. I mean, it's like, it's so hard to talk about because I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, it's nice that something that, you know, we had worked on for years, 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 years is something that people watch when they're in a bad mood or, or that they say they love. And that's all we can do as performers, you know, in this town though, which you were not yet it's not yet home, right? Because you had to go back to SNL after this for a little bit, brief period. Yeah. I think I had one more season after it came yeah. out. Yeah. So here, not that you don't hear what's going on here, but like people just said, oh, wow, this is the game changer. This is the one that's going to open the floodgates to movies about women because now people see that they can, that a movie with pretty much a exclusively female core ensemble can be this much of a hit. Why wouldn't we now go and make many more of these. And yet, just six years later, I don't know that that's happened, has it? No. And in fact, you personally, involved, being involved with Ghostbusters, saw some of the resistance yeah. to that, right? Yeah. I think when people say, like, oh, you know, we're going to give more female-centered movies a chance, you're not reading the fine print, which is, oh, but that means they have to be like this. What do you think they have to, what do people expect them to be like? I think it's like they want to see women acting like guys. And, you know, Bridesmaids wasn't the first movie to, you know, I mean, there's Hannah and her sisters. There's like, I mean, there's a million that are, I mean, that's not like a straight up comedy comedy, but it's interesting to me in a broader sense Mm -hmm. that the people who make movies don't 
have the mentality all the time to say, oh, that looks cool and different. Let's try that. It seems to be more on the side of like, oh, that worked. Let's do that again. They're just scared of breaking formula because if it doesn't work, they're going to get blamed. No, I think, I don't know what it is. I think it's just safer to go with something that maybe has a like quote unquote formula. Mm -hmm. But if you really just look back at movies that we love, if you listed your 10 favorite movies or like the 10 most successful movies of the past five years, they're all different. Yeah, they're not like other movies. They're not like other movies. So I do wish that they would take risks in that creatively especially with women because so what was the issue with ghostbusters why did they give that such a hard time that i think was i don't know if it was just because like we had switched the sexes of the main characters and that was like enough to make people write about it it's so to this day i don't really understand it yeah. it's so confusing why anyone would take the time out of their life <laughs> to write or even care about just to not have the attitude of like, oh, this will be cool. <laughs> you know, it's it like, yeah. it's also, it's like, it's a movie and right. we're not deleting the original. Right. And, you know, if they saw it, it's right. like we paid homage to it in yeah. so many ways. But is this whole trajectory of movies not, and in our home stretch coming up in a second, I'm going to ask about your post Bridesmaids pair, which is very different than anything that went on with Bridesmaids. But I mean, are you disheartened by what's happened since Bridesmaids in the sense that People didn't seem to learn any lessons from that. I mean, I was disheartened before. I mean, it's like, I think ultimately, if you read a script and it's good and it touches you, like that should be enough and just try to make that movie. And I think what disheartens me more is, is that when we have these like amazing scripts that these writers write by themselves, <laughs> for the most part, they get, they get changed and tweaked by what people think needs to be like marketable or or one of those words that has nothing to do with being a good film. Yeah. And then it changes like that. That disheartens me because yeah. that happens a lot. You read a script and then you see it and you're like, what happened? Right. And I, I think if we go back to having it be director, writer, artist friendly, then you'll find that. I don't know. I just think movies would be better. Yeah. Yeah. So with with you and these Years after Bridesmaids, people, I think, assume that most people, a lot of people just try to kind of cash in on being suddenly a even higher profile person with more opportunities at your disposal than that. You would figure you might double down on comedies or studio movies or whatever. Instead, I think you've done a string of primarily indie dramedies that are very interesting and I enjoyed a lot, and I think a lot of people who have seen them do, but these were not, like, kind of no-brainer moves. And a lot of people, you know, wondered what the thought process was. You've said, quote, I was introduced to the world as a member of SNL, but I've always wanted to do dramatic stuff, to write and direct, do a lot of different things, close quote. So I get nervous when you quote me. No, these are good. These are good. It's, it's like 60 minutes. You're just conditioned to, right? No, yeah. <laughs> but, okay, so I, I got to ask you about four of these. Oh, okay. Just the, not... We're not yes. going to harp on it, but like, girl, most likely playwright loses everything, moves home with mom. Take us through. And, and again, I actually love all four of the ones I'm going to ask you about. I wonder what just what drew you. That one for me was the script. That was Michelle Morgan wrote that script. And I, I just thought it was 
really well written and that was the main thing yeah. for me on that one. <laughs> Not an exciting answer, but no, it's fine. That get, let's just remind folks. Yeah, adaptation of best-selling book. Siblings who haven't seen each other in years both attempt suicide. Yeah, on the same day. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which is a a very Marketable. interesting <laughs> premise to me, yes. and I loved the script. And Craig Johnson, I think, is a very talented director, and I got to work with Bill and Bill Hader. Yeah, Bill Hader, and I mean. My answer will be the same for all of them. It's usually like the script is really good. And right? you just feel it when you okay. are supposed to do something. But all right, let's do Welcome to Me because here, yeah. this, even as I'm going to describe it, sounds insane. <laughs> this is a woman with some form of mental illness who is obsessed with Oprah, wins the lottery, and decides to use her winnings to pay for her own talk show about herself. Yeah. It's like almost Trumpian. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Elliot Lawrence, who I think is one of the greatest writers ever wrote that script and like page four, I was like, I'm in. And that one was just a very easy yes. And my, one of my best friends was producing it and, you know, Adam McKay's wife, Shira directed yeah. it and I know her. And that was one of the best filmmaking experiences, like making it yeah. that I've had. And the fourth of the four that I'm going to ask you, and there are many others we could, but these are the ones that really stood out to me. Diary of a Teenage Girl, partying mother of the main character, disappointed with her life. Yeah. Mari Heller, again, uh, another female director. I knew her from SNL because her husband, Yorma, was a writer. And she had sent me this, she went to like a film school, like a lab. Yeah. And um, sent me this thing that she made and it was beautiful. And then she sent me the script and... It just sounded, I just believed in her and the movie, and that was a really great experience. Now, if there, if somebody were to have just not even seen any of these movies but heard those four descriptions, they might think that you've played a lot of women who we're are insane. unhappy, <laughs> maybe a little crazy, but unhappy, lose everything and in one way or another, and then learn something about themselves on the way yeah. to finding that. Is that's that, a lot of main characters in films. <laughs> that's probably true. But like, um, I don't know. I mean, not these people are out there. Yeah. Is there a reason? Is that just, is there a reason if you were to sort of psychoanalyze yourself, why you would be drawn to those kinds of characters? Um, well, I don't know what it, what clicks in me when I love something. Maybe there's something about, just coming out of a really dark place and having there be a little bit of humor in there and knowing that visually, you know, it's, it's going to be a certain way. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> That's fine. It's like, you don't why have do you like know. stuff? I don't, yeah, I don't you know. Don't have to yeah, know. I don't know. Okay. Last, last few here. You are Emmy nominated this year for the eighth time. Guest hosting, this is for your guest hosting of the November 19th, 2016 episode of SNL. You had hosted once before in 2013, having, I guess at that point, it was like a year after leaving. What is it like to go back there after having spent so much of your life there? I, you alluded to it a little bit, but I mean, it's got to be a It's amazing. Thing. The first time, for sure, I was way more nervous um, for obvious reasons and and excited, you know, because you also get to, like, go behind the curtain a little bit and see how it works. SNL, I couldn't imagine my life 
without it, it's for me, those were just the best years of my life. And getting to go back there is, um, it's hard to explain. It's like, it's my home and working that muscle again and, and, and working with, you know, some of the same writers that were there when I was there. It's just, it's so fun. I mean, it's a hard, long week of madness and laughing so much. And just like, it's so just fun. Was there a favorite sketch or moment or whatever from that week, from this, you know, guest hosting experience, but also anything that you know, from just popping in for that week that would explain to you why this was the most watched SNL season in 23 years. They got a record 22 I Emmy know, nominations. so exciting. As many as any show on TV. Forget about Variety. So, Long overdue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was great. And yeah. four supporting, I think, five guest acting nominations. Just like an yeah. unbelievable thing. So your highlight of your episode and just your takeaway of the whole story you know, SNL comeback. I mean, I think, you know, this year was a crazy political tornado. And I think because it was so hard, (laughs) SNL really gave you a chance to at least be in the conversation without feeling depressed. (laughs) And not to mention the cast, I think right now is on fire and it just felt like an important time for the show and important to watch it and not only the political stuff but even just the sketches and the people that are on there right now i think it really helped who would you have most wanted to work with like if you were if you could only pick one of them to have I pulled can't into do your... that. i can't do that <laughs> that's no. terrible okay but we're gonna come back to your okay. what was your highlight oh. of your episode for you oh my god i you let's remind yeah. veronica what was veronica that wasn't that the whiskers are oh, we yeah. character oh yeah come on keep up here oh, i didn't this know is, no, i forgot teasing, my name was veronica teasing, <laughs> Veronica, if you are. Yes, Veronica. Okay. Secret word, QVC auditions. I mean, there was quite a bunch of that. (laughs) I mean, the two that I that I think of are the the one I did with Kate, the the whiskers, and the and the QVC one with Cecily. Yes. We we couldn't get through either one of those and without laughing. (laughs) I think we did it air. I'm not sure, but yeah, those were really those were really fun. And then the final things here are just uh, kind of rapid fire. Just first thing that comes to your mind. Oh God. Lauren Michaels, who, as I said, we were just talking to, going over, like, best superlatives of various things. And he has said, and I'm sure you've heard this before, you say, like, all right, who are your all-timers of whatever? He says about you, you are in the top, quote, top three or four, close quote, of all time. Forty, all but five of 42 years there. What do you make of hearing that? That's really nice. Oh, my gosh. Emmy Knight, you've been there before? Yes. You're, you kind of know what it's what it entails here, I'm sure. Uh, what was what's your craziest, funniest, most fun, most touching Emmy moment memory that we did not see on TV? Something that you personally from your past right now, maybe it'll be top September 17th, but right now the one that we didn't see on TV that meant the most or funniest or whatever to you. Well, I mean, I mean, just being there for SNL was like really meant a lot first one you mean or just, yeah the yeah. very first one and my dad my dad and my stepmom had people over to watch the emmys and they put a carpet like a red carpet outside their house <laughs> and he put on a wig and a hat and he 
he was his name is John. So he said yeah. he was John Rivers and he was interviewing everyone <laughs> that came in the house. My dad's really funny. That's Asking great. them like what they were wearing and like filmed it. Right. But then it was funny because my category was the first one and I lost. <laughs> and he was like, do we keep watching? <laughs> but yeah, my very first time I was there, I remember it was like my two friends, like Tina right. Faye and John Hamm were presenting my category and Kristen Chenoweth won. But I remember sitting in my seat and they were like, and the and the Emmy goes through and he's like, Kristen. And I had uh. this look on my face, like, oh my God. And right. then I was like, Chenoweth. And I tried to change my right. face to be like, oh, uh. And I just, I made so many faces in like 15 seconds. <laughs> I don't know if it's on TV, but. That should be a sketch. Uh, it, was, it was, it was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like, I didn't know what to do. And because they keep the cameras right. on you. Of course. The whole time. Well, the person's giving the speech and they're smiling and then you, your lip does that shake thing yeah. when you're like smiling but for like pissed. a long time. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like, get me to the party. <laughs> Last question. This fall, I was very excited and, and uh, impressed to see we will be seeing you in two movies, Darren Aronofsky and Alexander Payne. I don't know that there's anybody that can kind of compared to that for this coming year that's that's unbelievable and this is just for the record mother and downsizing respectively and then in the meantime you're doing richard linklater so is this weird surreal to you yes (laughs) yes it is that's that's i feel like i've said the word you can have a drinking game with this podcast every time i say weird yeah i don't i don't even know how to i feel really lucky and i'm really proud of of the movies and uh downsizing I've, I've seen and it's really amazing and special and i don't know i'm just i'm excited <laughs> well they will be at the fall fest and we'll yeah. see you there okay cool thank you very much thank you judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumbacasino.com it's my little escape now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.